Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. Look, uh, we have to come right out of the gate this morning with the fact that we have some rather disconcerting news to share with you. But fear not. It is going to be a great day. Would you like to get straight to it? You are not special. In fact, that's the title of the message this morning. You are not special. When you think through this, this fact, it really flies in the face of everything that you were told as a child. It flies in the face of everything that you currently tell your children. Each of us likes to think of ourselves as particularly special and manifestly unique. We derive a certain sense of self-worth from what is a very, very false perception. I can remember it like it was yesterday. May 5th, 2000. Cinco de Mayo in the year 2000. Our yes. first child, our first son, our pride and joy, Gabriel Wade Sutherland was born. We were so excited about it, I wanted to make sure that he had my name included in his. He's, he's sitting right here on the front row. Oh, yeah. Christy and I considered him to be such a handsome, well-built young man. I mean, look at him. He's like an Adonis. Stand up, son. Look at this. Just stand there for a second. We made sure that we told him these things most days of existence. At just over five foot nine and 170 pounds, he is the apple of our eye and the peak of the Sutherland Genetic Mountain right there before you. Of course, uh, the average, everybody say average. Average. The average male in the United States is five foot nine, 170 pounds. So I hate to tell you, son, but you are not special. Oh, uh, looking at Gabe, can't help me think of what God has produced in our household. Yeah. I have four beautiful daughters, one in which who is married to Gabe. Over the course of these years, Cassidy and I have told our girls every day of their lives how beautiful they are. Like all girls, they're naturally insecure. So what, we, what do we do? We conf confidently and constantly affirm that they're shaped perfectly, that all their curves are amazing, uniquely designed as attractive. Their eyes, they're captivating. The shape of their lips is extraordinary. We constantly affirm that they really do look good in that dress or in those jeans. The thing is, highly scientific studies have yeah, shown science, pure, high-level science, has shown that most women have two eyes. Two eyes. Highly scientific. Much research has gone into this. Two eyes and two breasts. Yeah. Two butt cheeks. Yeah. 
two ovaries. Yeah. And only one womb. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Science. So, Piro girls, since you still buy your clothes where every other woman can buy them, I hate to tell you, you are not special. You really want to be unique, manifestly unique. Grow a third breast, it'll do it for you. The Stevens men. The Stevens men thrive on a certain perception. The outlier, the rugged one in the distance, the thing that busts the curve. I'm talking about breaks the mold. Since the day that each of my sons entered the world, they've been told that they're exceptionally smart, that they have a unique skill set, that they have a high degree of critical reasoning, that they are destined for the greatest of successes. In fact, many of you were told these things by your parents, and you repeated them in very affirming ways to your children. But the thing is, well, we have a slide for you. 95% of all human beings on the planet fall into exactly the same IQ range. So 95% of people have an IQ between 70 and 130. 70% of all people have an IQ that is between 85 and 115. So unless you are in the upper echelon of a particularly erudite society, something like Mensa, which, by the way, has 50,000 members in the United States, you're probably not special in this arena either. My son, since, uh, since your standardized test scores, <laughs> golly, how can I put this? Yeah. Well, they were very standard. <laughs> <laughs> you are not special. Church, we're going to have to come to grips with something. In any lineup of a thousand human beings of your gender category, because those do still exist, gender <laughs> categories. None of you would stand out as particularly physically dominant. None of you would stand out as intellectually superior or <clears throat> astoundingly attractive to the point that it would distinguish you from all 999 of the other kind in your lineup. You are not special. Upon closer examination of the fallacy in our logic when practicing this kind of false affirmation, it reveals that nothing in all creation is new under the sun. Do you have sensational symmetry? Mm. Newsflash. So do many other of your kind. It's true. Do you excel in intellectual prowess? Newsflash. So do many other of your kind. Congratulations. Do you think that you're really in fantastic, I mean great physical shape? Where you at, Tom? Come on now. 69% of men think about themselves this way, while only 13% are actually even in reasonable shape. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 70% think it, 13% are actually living it. Yep. 
We love objective standards. They really show you that you are not special. None of us are special. And the same could be said even of the Messiah. This is exactly what Isaiah 53 says. Turn with us to Isaiah 53. Say you are not special as you turn. Pick up in verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Wow. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So look, if Isaiah is to be taken seriously, then not even the Messiah was extraordinary in his appearance. He was not exceptional with his intellectual capacity or astounding with his physical aptitude. Apparently, the Father did not need to make Jesus special in these ways in order to instill into him a sense of security and self-worth. It goes without saying that the Father did not have to lie to his Son to make him feel special. You know, Pastor, I'm just going to ask you one more time to repeat that yes because this habit is so well ingrained in us yes. that for some of you it's the first time that we ever looked at you and you heard the words you are not special so the father did not need to make jesus special in these ways in order to instill into him a sense of security and self-worth it goes without saying that the father did not have to lie to his son to make him feel special. Yeah, I remember a time when one of my sons, who will remain nameless, but he's Judah on the front row, <laughs> says, Mom, Mom, do you like my hair? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, son, you have the most beautiful hair. You have the best kind of hair. Mom, do you like my eyes? Oh, yes, honey. You have eyes like your daddy. I love your eyes. Your eyes are the best. Mom, do you like my TT? <laughs> my God, you're more like your father every day. <laughs> Look, there is another way. Oh, did y'all just get that? <laughs> there is another way that people like to feel special. And that is in the sphere of our hardships. Each of us tends to think that we have had a particularly rough road. In fact, we represent a lot like American Idol contestants as we skillfully set any accomplishment in our lives in direct contrast with all that we've had to overcome. This perverse and flawed attempt to make what we've accomplished seem even better in the light of our supposed difficulties. Yep. Well, the thing is, is you're not particularly special in this way either. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common, common. to mankind. Common. It's been so hard. We shall overcome. No, no. It's common to all of us. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. It's pretty much the way it works for everybody. Now, I can tell I'm going to get in trouble today. Let's do it. Nothing raises the sinful offense indicator faster. I'm talking about blanching from your throat all the way up to your face until your head looks like a thermometer. Then telling a mother, your little Johnny is not special. This is because we reinforce and we value all of the wrong things. I mean, things that are demonstrably untrue. Recently, I found myself in a conversation where I was sitting with a homeschooled young man that genuinely perceives himself to be superior to most because his parents have told him all of his life that he's superior to most. And yet every data point in his life points to the unassailable fact that he's plainly average in every way. When I mentioned this to his parents, <laughs> the internal struggle was quite obvious. Lots of pausing, no comments, lots of physical adjustments. And mind you, this was with me making a concerted effort not to point out the copious amount of data that points to the fact that he's below average in many areas. But isn't that true of all of us? Yes. We are relatively average, not special at all, except in some ways that we fail bigger than the rest of humanity. Do we have your attention yet this morning? Yeah. If We're, this didn't get their attention, I don't, I don't know what would. We're going to start our discussion today where all good things begin. We're going to start in the law. Let's all turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to display the N-E-T translation on your screen for you today as we're reading through this. You're all aware as we pick up in the 10th verse that mankind has just experienced sin for the very first time. And our context in this passage will be dealing with the aftermath of that sin. Are you there in Genesis with us? Genesis 3 and verse 10 from the NET translation. The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, <laughs> she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman replied, the serpent tricked me and I ate. It was this neat. <laughs> it has been noted in countless sermons that Adam and Eve are participating in the first national pastime. Take me out. No, to no, the no, 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 not, no. Not that pastime. Oh. The actual first pastime of humanity. It's not baseball. It is the universal human desire to transfer blame for a failure to any other place other than yourself. That's good. Well, look, your pastors understand that given that this church is well aware and grasp the cultural mandate of mankind, the one stated from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where man is given dominion over the creation. And we understand that 1 Corinthians 11 clearly outlines the order of shalom, meaning that the scriptural hierarchy of God ruling over man, man ruling over woman, and humanity ruling over the creation, 
you might notice that every statement in Genesis 3, 12 through 13 is the expression of sinning downhill. Look, I can see your eyes glazing over. Uh, you come to church sometimes to be entertained, other times to be inspired, and we're going to teach you today. And so you're like, what was that? This is uh, an Olympic sport. It's like the downhill slalom, and it's called downhill sinning. I'd like to put it on a slide and show you how it's been going in the creation from the beginning. Adam, the man, he was put in charge of and told to lead the woman. And yet, Adam blames the one under his authority for his failure to lead. Anytime you've ever been on a job and you're responsible for people and somebody comes and says, why did you not meet this deadline? It's the employee's fault. This is sending downhill. And some of us do it better than a slalom skier. Now, it's not uniquely male that does this. It's endemic to humankind. Because the woman was called to co-lead the creation. She's supposed to be alongside of her husband, bringing the earth and the animal kingdom into subjugation to God's image that was invested in them. But notice that the woman's tendency, her gut instinct, is to blame a subordinate beneath her in the creation. Look, with that in mind, do you understand what sinning downhill is? Uh, that wasn't enough of you. So, so let's pretend that you go out with Tom on a bike ride. Because as far as I know, not very many of you are cyclists in here, and I'm certainly not. If I do it, it has 98 horses and giant ape hanger handlebars and a sissy rack on the back, okay? That's a Harley. And when I was a child and still did foolish things like exercising, when I was wicked and ran though nothing was chasing me, when I still did those things, the only reason that I rode up a hill was for the privilege of coasting down the other side. God has called us to climb a hill of authority. And when we start to perceive it, we see it as a privilege to blame any failure that we have on whoever is beneath us downhill. Okay? With that in mind, if you didn't get the rest, maybe you got the cycling thing. Genesis 3.14, again, in the NET. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the wild beasts. Now, if the curse goes beyond what is having, happening to all the wild beasts, another way to dynamically translate this is cursed are you beneath all of the wild beasts. In meaning of this category. Of the bottom of the category, you will be the bottom of that. You, and you're, on your belly you will crawl. And dust you will eat all the days of your life. The serpent was already beneath both the man and the woman in the hierarchy of God's order. But as a result of the serpent's actions, the serpent is now also the lowest of all of the animals within the hierarchy. What follows is a description of the functional aspects of the curse. In other words, once sin was introduced, you're going to see that the hierarchy that God established is incredibly frustrated, but still very much present. Before we move on to verse 15, is it all right that we take our time here this morning? 
See, because what we are not after is a bunch of heads that nod up and down, but lives that are transformed. It's yeah. almost like this is life-changing ministries. So we're going to take our time and get into this this morning. We even created a visual for you. We put it on a slide because you need to remember in every way that shalom, somebody say shalom. Shalom. It is the order and harmony that results from obeying God. So take a look at this slide. 1 Corinthians 11.3 gives you the order, the hierarchy of what God has established. Now listen to it. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In case that was too complicated, even though it is as pashatly as it can be stated, we drew it a picture for you on the right side of the screen. The flow of shalom starts with God, who is over all and is all in all. He has empowered his son, Jesus Christ, with all authority, with all judgment, that he might cause the entirety of creation to come in right order. This same Christ is over mankind. He is, has authority and has commanded man to walk in dominion with him. Man is over the woman. The woman is over the children, and what we see here, just to make sure that you remember that we're still in Genesis 3, we even put the serpent on the screen for you at the very bottom of this totem pole, because it, it aligns with Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 through 28 that Pastor Matt mentioned a minute ago. This is the mandate that humanity has. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. Somebody rule. say Rule. By verse 28, it says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule. rule. Somebody say rule. 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 Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground, even the serpent that is now at the bottom of that group. See, church, men and women, we are designed to function in a hierarchy. This is God's ordained path. This is his promise. This is his desire for all of mankind so that we might rule over the creation in every way possible. This is the way he originated it here in Genesis. And it did not change when the fall occurred. When sin was introduced, it did not change the hierarchy, the order the shalom that we are supposed to walk in. One of the ways that you know that is after the flood in Genesis 6, they get off of a boat in Genesis 9, and the exact same mandates are announced. So sin did not change God's plan. He doesn't have to react to it. It frustrated our ability to carry out the plan. Now, with that understood, let's look at the difficulties that would pre be present as a result of sin. We're going to read Genesis 3.15. And I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head, and you will attack her offspring's heel. Even though God put all created animals under the man and woman, the lowest of the animals, the serpent, would resist their rule and begin to wage open warfare on the children of the man and woman. The man sinned downhill by blaming the woman that he was supposed to lead. The woman sinned downhill by blaming the serpent that mankind was to rule over. Now, the bottom of the hierarchy is going to attack and resist those above it. The serpent 
will strike at the heels of mankind. The order of shalom and rule in creation did not change. But it was now frustrated by rebellion. The bottom of the hill is in rebellion to those on top of the hill. The good news is if you feel like you're living in an upside-down world, you are. <laughs> and it's our job to turn it right side up. When a sissy boy wants to become a woman, it's because he is scared to lead and is rebelling against God's structure. Mm -hmm. When a woman wants to become a man, it's not the sexual desire that is perverse, and it is, that is driving her. It is a hatred for the order that God established and a desire to usurp it. Exactly right. Let's, uh, yeah, that'll get us thrown yeah. off YouTube. <laughs> hey, let's uh, move to... Chapter 3 and verse 16 in the NET. To the woman, he said, it's God speaking to uh, Mrs. Eve, not yet named Eve. I will greatly increase your labor pains. Any woman out there want to say amen? She didn't have epidurals. With pain, you will give birth to children. As you're engaging with that, remember that part of her calling was to multiply and fill the earth with good things. It is still her calling. It's just now very hard to do it. It hurts. Look at this next line. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate or have dominion over you. Now, that is a different translation than you might be used to hearing. The NET Bible translators understood that the Hebrew word teshuka, usually translated as desire, your desire will be for your husband, is not a healthy expression of desire. In fact, in Genesis 4, the sin that is crouching at uh, Cain's door and desires to have him is the same word. It desires to dominate him, to control him. The word is used frequently. We won't do word studies today, but it's used frequently of the way that an animal wants to control the prey that it's about to eat. So in Genesis here, we have a statement. Ladies, you're going to have an innate desire to try to control the way that things go. And God has said, your husband will have dominion over you. So as we engage with this, notice that nothing changes in the hierarchy. The thing that is different as a result of a fall is that a woman now has a strong desire to usurp, a strong desire to control or manipulate her husband. Why? Well, it's usually because she's scared. 1 Peter 3 teaches that fear is also at the root of this. She's not sure she can trust his leadership because he's already demonstrated his failure. That's the normal state of the human race. Now, we see that the man, man sinned downhill, and therefore he has to contend with an uphill rebellion. Yeah. His subordinate is not excited about his rulership. The serpent was meant to be ruled over by men and women, but he also will rebel and attack. The woman was to rule with the man under his leadership, and she will now have a natural but sinful desire to control him. In every stage, what you see is that the man still has to do his job, 
but there is a rebellion intrinsic in it that will try to stop. The woman still has to do her job, but there is now a rebellion born into her flesh that will try to keep her from doing it. And in every case, God pronounces both the existence of this new reality and that it will be overcome. She will desire to control him, but he will have dominion. The serpent will strike at the feet of mankind, but mankind will step on its head. It's the same pattern in every single instance. Now, it's worth noting, again, that these are prophecies about an existing reality and what their outcome will be, and the order never changes. Look at verse 17. But to Adam he said, Because you obeyed your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. you what did he do? He obeyed his, his wife. wife. Oh. Uh, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you and said, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground, thanks to you. In painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. We want to make sure that you get this. Adam, who is on the top of God's hierarchy and rulership on earth, obeyed someone he was supposed to be leading. Even worse, he blamed his failure to lead on her. See, essentially everything under Adam's dominion will now be very difficult to cultivate. But look here on the screen. In painful toil, you will eat. Get both parts of that phrase. It is going to be difficult, but you will be able to overcome. In painful toil, you will eat of it, and you're going to eat of it all the days of your life. But just like the eating will be all the days of your life, so will the painful toil. Because that has now been introduced into humanity. And by us walking in shalom rightly, we are putting things back in their right order. At every level of the hierarchy, there would now be rebellion, resistance that made it more difficult. But at every level, God's order would still prevail. Amen. So let us just state it plainly. The order is still that Adam leads Eve, that they together rule over creation, but that at every level of the creation, there's a rebellion that takes place back against the man and the woman. How about for the women? The women will be distrustful of their leader and want to control. Did we have some of that last night, honey? Yes, but what are we right now? We're in shalom, aren't we? Man, that is a sexy grandma on the front row. And she knows how to get shalom right. It's also endemic to her nature to not want to. And if you just think that we're talking about you ladies before you got saved, you are not special. <laughs> we're talking about you right now. Men, men are going to have difficulty in performing your task and be tempted to be distrustful and want to control, usurp, and manipulate God. See, this is now the fallen order of things. So with this plainly laid out, and we want to keep moving, we, we summarize some of these effects on a, another slide for you. It's important that You're these welcome. concepts are clear to us. In fact, you have been experiencing them all of your lives. So you might as well be able to visualize them since you're already experiencing them right now. So on the left side of the slide, we have the floor of shalom as outlined in 1 Corinthians 11, where God is the head of Christ, Christ the head of man, man the head of woman, woman 
over the children and mankind over creation. Well, there is a rebellion to this flow of shalom. It's a rebellious reality seen on the right-hand side of the screen. It starts with the serpent and the serpent attacking the children of mankind, but also going further up the hierarchy, attacking the woman and attacking the man. But what we see is also the woman wanting to control the man, participating in that same rebellious reality. I think you can see that sitting downhill causes rebellion to the one above them, meaning that if the man is sinning downhill by blaming his wife, he is acting rebellious to hit his head, who is Christ. So there's a great question before mankind because of this rebellious reality. It is the question of dominion. Now seen on our next slide. That dominion, as pointed out, between Christ and man. Here's the point. Every man must decide whether he is going to live in a rebellious reality that is defined by the serpent's attack on God's order, or if as a man, he is going to live in the dominion of Christ and re-engage with his God-given dominion as a leader on earth. One that is responsible for everything that happens under his sphere of influence. This is why we've been preaching the messages on dominion and the responsibility of a man to take ownership without excuses for those the man is called to lead. This is why we've been emphasizing the warrior-like masculine nature that was bestowed upon biblical men to confront the evil realities of our time. But listen to me. Everything starts with a man reclaiming his God-given dominion. Everything. This is the beginning of the process that removes the rebellious reality from our creation. Jesus has set for us the perfect example. We live in and under his dominion. dominion. And then from that, we operate in the dominion that he has apportioned to us. Come on. So it's just you and us. Can I get real with you guys for a moment? Come on, get real, Pastor. Uh, that's not enough participation that I need. Can I get real with you? Yeah, if you're sleepy, rouse yourself. If your son, who is 10 to 13 years old, is trying to fall asleep right now, first step in teaching him to be a man, shake him. Wake him up. This is maybe not the most timeless word in the world, but it is timely for this church right now. And I'm not going to lower it by allowing no. us to coast through it. No. Are you alive and with us this morning? Yes. Let this impact your heart and soul because it's going to change our whole church. So once again, can I get real with you for a moment? Yes. Have you experienced some frustration trying to lead those in your dominion? Yes? Show of hands. Let me see it. Okay. Have you noticed that they kind of want to do what they want to do? Kind of. Or kind, kind of. of want you to do what they want you to do? Well, you are not special. It has been this way for every man in every year since the fall. If dominion is the first step in regaining biblical masculine holiness, 
The second step is cultivation. Look at it in verse 18 of Genesis 3. It's God speaking to Adam. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. <laughs> That's not good. Anybody want to eat thorns and thistles? But it's now a reality yeah. based on what's happened. L listen to the next part. But you will eat grain of the field. See, both things are true. God's order will still produce life, but it also will be resisted, and that produces other things. I love verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, yeah. you will eat food. Until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you'll return. Look, man's dominion is without question. It is a biblical and God-directed fact, period. That settles it. So is the man's responsibility to cultivate that which is in his dominion. Yeah. Yeah. He has to bring the best out of it. He has to work hard for it. The fall has made this infinitely more difficult because of entropy and the creation itself that now resists the man's cultivation. Now, you work hard to cultivate that which is under your dominion, and it often produces thorns. That's true for all of us. Not just thorns, but thistles. You wanted to grow something good, and you see things growing that are not good. This was never supposed to be easy. So you're discouraged by it because you're trying to get around the sweat of the brow part. You were not supposed to be able to sit in your fluffy pajama pants eating a hot pocket that one of your household servants brought you while playing a video game and be able to cultivate the earth. It's not easy. So as you go to work tomorrow and sit in your air-conditioned office in your neatly threaded suits, remember that God said it will be by the sweat of your brow that you eat. Yeah. He never said you could sit on your massage chair, heated, air-conditioned, with every aid in the world, and then get frustrated when you saw thorns and thistles. It's amazing how we try to work around the yeah. curse. Yeah. Can I get real with you for a moment? Yeah. It's a very rare thing for me. <laughs> Have you said something that was a revelation? I'm talking about it's noble. It's pure. It's biblically true. And you were expressing it to those that are in your dominion only to have them forget it, twist it, or you can see the rebuttal forming in their eyes as you're saying it. Well, you're not special. This is hard, sweaty work, and it can only be done with maximal, sustained, and constant, diligent, spirit-inspired effort. It's supposed to be hard. That's why he called men to do it. This is such the right word for this group of people today. See, because we think that we know some of these things, but the Lord is showing and he's actually giving revelation. Since this church is familiar with shalom, let's engage with the category of Savior for a moment. Does man save Jesus? No. no of course not. 
Luke 19.10 says that for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It is not the responsibility of those under us to save us. For those who have dominion and are cultivating, it is our responsibility to save those entrusted to us. To not get that right would be as silly as me running behind my 12-year-old daughter when something was fearful about outside of the house. Is that obvious to you? Do you get that? Well, it should be just as obvious. And ladies, I want to train you here for a second. When husband comes home and goes, I had such a hard day at work. Look at him and say, what would you like me to do about that? It was a portion to you from God. Man up. Now maybe, honey, you could look at him and say, I love you and God will help us both. But for sure, husband, you're asking her to protect you. Or you can say boo to that. As you let the sting of that set in, let us remind you of what the right order of shalom is. It's really fun to go off notes. No, it really is great. The Father saves and delivers Christ from the grave. Christ saves and delivers man from the dominion of sin. Man lives in and expresses the dominion of Christ to lead his wife in a new existence. Moms protect, deliver, and save their children. And should the family dachshund need deliverance, the children can help save that situation too. And if you have a dachshund, you know they do need deliverance often. (laughs) Can I get real with you for a minute? Have you ever tried to step in and save your spouse from an evil-like offense? only to realize that you joined with her in the evil of offense. Yeah, I think there should be a show of hands. Uh Uh-huh. That's good. Take ownership of that because it's one of the things we're going to correct today. It will fix all of our counseling from the last month because most of it has been a man's failure to lead in joining with his wife in the evil of offense. And ladies, don't think we're picking on you. Your husband should have extricated that sinful garbage from your heart And instead, he believes he's helping you by joining with you in it. And that is just pansy Christianity. And we're going to fix it. To join with your wife in offense, in the evil of offense, that lets you know you are not special. Adam didn't save his wife from evil. He joined her in it. See, this has been happening to mankind since the beginning of creation. You're not special. This is exactly what the Word of God says, and it's also given us the solution to this. Pastor, you unfairly singled out men in this church, except that this is exactly what God said to the federal head of the human race who started the process. None of us are special in it. We all have a desire to save, and we do it in the wrong way. You know, the truth is that the actual Word of God is singling you out today. It's calling you to a higher standard of being the man that God has called you to be. Look, just for clarity's sake, everybody say, you are not special. You are not not special. special. All right. So I got a tally for you, a number count. So far in this message, we have told you at least 20 times that you are not special. Would you like another one? (laughs) You're welcome. And here's the point. We meant it. We meant it. There is, however, something that would make you special. Do you want to hear more about that? 
Well, the world around us is committed to and is perpetuating the rebellious reality. A man becomes special when he becomes committed to reversing the curse in the creation by living in biblical shalom. If you're stacked against 999 of your kind, physically you're not special, mentally you are not special, the one thing that would be special is go take a thousand people out of humanity and then see how many per thousand are actually full-time dedicated to reversing the curse on the planet. Well, that would make you special. Amen. Living in biblical shalom is what can make you special. So shalom is the answer to the chaotic rebellion all around us and all in us. When a man becomes completely committed to living in the dominion of Christ as Christ exists in the dominion of the Father, the first thing the man has to do is to learn to re-embrace the five areas of holy masculinity that are necessity, necessary to complete the God-given mission of mankind. Let's put up that slide of reminding what these five traits of holy masculinity are. If you're new here today, this is our fourth message in a series on these things. Yeah. So we're trying to help you catch up to where the rest of the body should be and help our remedial crowd catch up to where they should be. Amen. So as you look at this chart and are reminded of what we are progressing through, let's start with a man living in the dominion of Christ wants to extend that dominion. He is taking ownership and responsibility for those that he leads. Secondly, a man being cultivated by Christ wants to cultivate those under his care. He works hard to bring out the best in those that he leads, whether that means pruning them or fertilizing them. Both are required. A man that has been and is being saved by Christ, he wants to rescue those under his care from the evil perils that are endemic to this fallen world. He operates in the spirit and word of God. He operates in the spirit and word of God to deliver those under his care, delivering them from the evil that is residing in them and oppressing them from the outside. Look, after dominion, cultivation, and saviors, that brings us to the topic of sages, which is really what we're supposed to be preaching about today. In short, a sage has gone through many seasons of applying the principles of shalom. A sage has gone through many seasons of attempting dominion, attempting cultivation, attempting to be a saving and rescuing force in this world. A sage necessarily has failed many times, but he's turned those failures into learning opportunities that will progress you faster than the sage himself experienced it. A sage knows from his own trial and error that there is an extraordinary difference between a counterfeit expression of dominion and Christ's expression of dominion. A sage knows from trial and error that there is a difference between counterfeit cultivation and Christ's cultivating work extending and flowing out from you. A sage knows from trial and error the difference between pseudo-saviors, little sissy boys working for the approval of those that they lead, 
and real saviors that are willing to live under the scorn of those they're saving because they know God's will for that person. A sage knows the difference between destroying evil and leaving difficulty for someone's development. Hey, church, sages, sages are special. I've been through enough seasons of trial and error and repetitive failure that I got back up from, and the grace of God carried me to develop a little bit of sagely wisdom. I want to start with you by reading Proverbs 16, and we will get special sagely insight into the application of biblical dominion. We're going to work back through these as a sage would and then arrive at sage. Proverbs 16.32 in the ESV. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit. Hey, you want to have dominion? You can't rule over anything until you have figured out how to rule over your own spirit. Husband, unbutton the, sh- the button on your chest. Let the, let the hair show out of your shirt and beat your chest and call yourself a man. And if you cannot control your temper, that is effeminate as all get out. Oh, it's not feminine. Feminine is godly and beautiful. It's effeminate. It's some hybrid category that should never have existed for emasculated males. See, controlling your own spirit is the beginning of dominion, period. A sage knows that conquering in general can be carnal. A sage knows that all real dominion must flow from Christ's dominion within his own life. A sage knows that his own spirit must be within the dominion of Christ to appropriately express dominion. Have you ever looked in a dictionary and you still didn't know what the word meant? So you look at synonyms and they help you? And you might even look at an antonym and it helps you kind of narrow down what this word means that you're looking at? I want to give you some antonyms here. A sage knows that video games are fake dominion. It's not real dominion. It's fake dominion. And it's aimed at a false sense of accomplishment that replaces the very real accomplishments that men are called to do. So you don't have to sweat. You don't have to work. You, don't, you just sit as a mindless idiot staring into a demonic box feeling a sense of achievement. I, I have a newsflash for y'all. Leading a halo extraction team, that's cheap. It's dirty. It's an infantile attempt to replace your God-given mandate to lead your family. Come on, that's true. A sage knows that pornography is fake dominion. It's aimed at feeling a false sense of intimacy that replaces the very real accomplishment of a masculine biblical man Winning the heart and body of a real life. Somebody say real life. Real life. Flesh and blood. Woman that has decided she wants to live under your dominion and leadership because she sees what your life is producing. In other words, people are drawn to pornography because they don't have to demonstrate any capacity for anything. They're a passive recipient, just like in a video game, and feel themselves rewarded. It is juvenile. And a sage, a sage would know this. 
Somebody say, sages are special. Sages are special. Not only do they know about dominion, but these sages are special because they have gone through seasons of trial and error and know the difference between carnal cultivation and Christ's cultivation. Turn with us to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 15 together in the ESV. Ephesians 4.15 says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love. Okay, I'm going to go back and get it again. Some of you are turning. We're 52 minutes in. You need to steal your resolve because we are not going to leave this topic until we get it today. Pretend it's the Super Bowl. You'll do just fine. We haven't even approached halftime yet. <laughs> and there won't be a metal-encrusted memory slip. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Somebody say grow up. Grow up! You got to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. A sage knows that what is oftentimes called loving speech is most of the time not truthful speech. You look amazing in that sweater. A sage knows that what causes a person to feel good often does not push them to grow into what Christ is. Okay, now you, you need to dial in. This is, this is most of you nice guys' problem in here. You're more aimed at making sure that the people that you lead feel good about your leadership than making them grow up. And it has been demonstrable in your lives. We are working hard here to get your attention and this is why new people come in the church, embrace the teaching, and fly past you. So we're trying to fix it right now. Yep. And it is a decades-old problem in most of your lives. So make sure that you are dialing into this section. What we're saying is we're trying to help you to become a sage in this topic. And the thing that is keeping you from becoming a sage is you think you already are. Right. But we're going to speak the truth to you today in love. A sage knows that biblical cultivation must involve loving, truthful speech that demands growth. Yeah, demands growth. The point of cultivation is not that what needs to grow feels good about it. It's that it actually grows. Cultivation both plants and prunes. Cultivation secures and it plows the soil as needed. Let us talk to you about what a sage also knows about fake cultivation. A sage knows that flattery is fake cultivation. Everybody say flattery. Flattery. And flattery is aimed at pampering an ego rather than cultivating the character of Christ. Listen to what I'm about to say to you. Because we're talking to you. It pretends to find the best in people. Uh-huh. I'm just thinking the best. I'm just worried about them and, and how they would receive that. It pretends to find the best in people while it leaves the worst undealt with. You should dial into that. Yeah. You think that it is noble to simply be complimentary in what you call edifying and built it. But if you are leaving the worst in somebody undealt with, 
then you are not cultivating them. You're leaving that work for a man to do. And you're male, but not a man. We need to fix this problem. It should not be somebody else's job to step into your dominion and say what is hard for you to say. Come on. You should do it. Yeah. Flattery is devilish. Flattery is devilish. This kind of fake cultivation rewards the fraud who's giving it with the acceptance of the person receiving it. Because growth is not demanded. It doesn't promote shalom. It only perpetuates rebellion. Can I give you an example from my own life that I was reminded of? There was a a person who was acting in a demonic fit. My response, because I was trying to be ever the diplomat in the situation. Diffuse. Let me diffuse the situation by saying, ma'am, I can see that you're passionate and I appreciate your passion, but dot, dot, dot. That was a flattery, a false cultivation because I wanted to be accepted and I did not deal with the demonic onslaught of what this person was doing because I thought I was being helpful by diffusing the situation. But it left the worst in the woman undealt with. So we're a band of brothers, and one of the brothers came over the top and said, nobody appreciates the passion you're showing. It's wicked and demonic, and if it happens here again, we will show you the door with all necessary force. And you know what? It stopped. This is an example from my life of how poorly I understood what real Christ cultivation is about. Come on now, men. You should, be, you should be digging into this. Think about Absalom in, in 2 Samuel 15. Absalom was a man who stood outside of the gate, and as everyone would come in, say, you know what? You do have a valid point. You have a great valid point. You too, sir, you also have a valid point. As a matter of fact, let me take you by the hand and kiss you on your hand so that I might win your heart. Except that Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Come on, man. Are you multiplying your kisses in this room to your wives? Are you multiplying your kisses to your children instead of standing up in real cultivation and demanding growth from them? It is not loving if it is not truthful. Your job is not to work for their acceptance. That's not your job. You want to. I want to. This is evil masquerading as light. This makes you believe you are doing something noble when in fact you are perpetuating evil. Work for your two-year-old's acceptance and see how that goes for you. Let us give you another picture of what this looks like. Is that stinging enough for you yet? We're trying. We're intentionally doing this because we actually love you and the pastors on the stage know how to cultivate you. And that is what is happening as we're speaking. A sage knows that it is fake cultivation to consider fruit in one area as making up for the deficit of fruit in another area. Please don't look over here. Please, Pastor, let me tell you the three things that I did right today, and I will make sure that you never know about the 48 things that I did that were pretty wicked today. A sage has discovered that it is that this entire process is motivated by a carnal need to be accepted when he is in fact lowering the standard of Christ each moment that he's doing it. 
True cultivation, church, causes each part of the body to grow into what Christ is. As Matthew takes us into the next area, let me just say, this is common to all mankind. We're not special in experiencing this temptation. But it is special to recognize what God's word and his order says and work with all of your heart to get there. Okay? You have to come to grips with what you think is righteous might not be righteous. That goes all the way back to the garden as well. What you think is wisdom might not be wisdom. And some of you are masters at making all of your arguments sound like they're noble, but the fruit tells the truth. There's a reason God put these men on the stage to teach you this. We've been through enough trial and error in this process to start to recognize it in ourselves so that we can help you with it. All of a man's ways seem right to him. It feels like the right thing to do, and it's not. No, I'm so appreciative that God is giving us such a timely word that's going to peel back the scales of self-deception and show us what his word is actually speaking to us and help us become sages who are special. So a sage is special because he knows from seasons of trial and error that the biblical man saves from evil, but does not deliver from difficulty. So everybody turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verse 8. We'll read it in the NASB sound booth. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Of the devil. Pashat. Pashat, right there in your face. By of the devil, what do you mean? (laughs) Of the Satan. (laughs) We can do it in as many languages as you want. It'll all say the same thing. (laughs) For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The purpose of destroying the devil's works. So look, a sage knows that in order to be a savior... He must destroy the devil's work, attacking the source of evil, not the difficult circumstances which are meant to develop every believer. He knows the difference. A sage knows that in order to be a savior, the word of God must be deployed as a two-edged sword, exactly like Hebrews 4.12 says. Two edges. Two edges. So there's the first edge. That first edge corrects the thoughts, attitudes, and motives of his own heart and family, those within his own dominion. And the second edge strikes at the root of evil that then threatens them. Can we tell you which edge you'll have to use more? (laughs) You're going to shave your own face more than you're going to run to shave somebody else's. (laughs) So, with that understood, the application of God's word, to us first in our family, and then attacking that root of evil, there is a counterfeit to this. A sage knows that it is fake saving when they seek to rescue by nurturing offense and defending the indefensible actions of those they lead. And here's why. Because they are really just working for the approval of those they are saving rather than for God's approval. As a leader, you cannot need the affirmation of the people that you're leading or you are by definition following them. Yeah. This kind of fake saving 
is characterized by them being nice guys. Nice. So nice guys. They can't bear upsetting someone they love. I mean, well groomed, well manicured, yes. well waxed, yeah. highlighted. Nice guys. Metro. These men, they're, they're revered. I mean, they're, they're looked up to and highly apprised as good men who are empathetic, they're understanding, they listen, and those they lead accept and receive this because they never have dared to step outside of the nice guy perception in the correction of those they lead. Look, real saviors often have to live under the scorn of those they lead because they are saving the, one that, the ones that they're leading from the sin within their, their own hearts, the very sin that those that they're leading cannot see in themselves. Sages know this by trial and error of being a real Savior. We can only do this so long, so we are going to keep moving. But one of the odd reverse affirmations that you'll get in successful leadership is when you have occasionally really ruffled the feathers of people that you love. Now, you have to use that sword on your own heart to make sure that you're in the dominion of Christ, that what you're doing is actually cultivating, that it really is rescuing them from evil. But if they agree with you all of the time, you are probably following them, not leading them. And that is epidemic in this church with some of the most uh, affable, kind, amicable Christians that I know. You, you emphasize partnership way too much and those you lead are your directing force in your life you're working for their acceptance you're working for their approval all of the time and you don't know why they want something more it's because you're supposed to become more than that amen that's a good word a sage knows that it is fake saving when their actions enable sin to continue rather than destroying it at the source. These men are insecure. They're insecure, and they need affirmation of those they lead because they do not have the affirmation of God. They're seeking a pseudo-source of it. If God has made it very clear to you, you won't be looking for the approval no. of those you're leading. No. But if you have not taken the time to actually hear from God because you are a lazy little manlet, then you will look for the affirmation of those that are, am I going the right way? Am I going the right way? And they're supposed to be following you. Yeah. And they will direct you in the way that they think it should go. It's endemic to mankind. They will want to control you. Yeah. And you're sad that you want to be controlled. Stand up in your masculinity and Amen. leave. Amen. Are you going to do that, men? Yeah. You're going to stand up in your masculinity? Our job as real saviors is to deliver from evil, not from difficulty. We don't just focus on the situation. We focus on the source in the souls of those that we lead. And a sage is special because he knows the difficulties are actually for development. If you rescue people from them, then you will have to do it again and again and again and again. As evidenced in our history. Yeah. Because their development is delayed, and you are the cause of it. Exactly like Proverbs 19, 19 says. Thank you, Chris. So to put it plainly, 
Y'all need some Pashat speech this morning? To put it plainly, enablers are not saviors. Enablers are not saviors. And here's what enablers do. They pretend to rescue by joining in and sympathizing with sin. They fail to address the errors of those that they pretend to be saving. Saviors destroy sin at the source. Even if it's in somebody you love. Yes. The sage is special because he has gone through trial and error to arrive at correct discernment in identifying the role of the biblical masculine savior. Are y'all feeling beat up? Is that what's happening? Ask us how we know this. I've done this every wrong way that you can. Like every parent, I wanted my sons to love me. I mean, I, I worked for it, but you can't. You do what God says and trust that he will cause that to happen. Like every husband, I want my wife to want for nothing. I mean, if she's upset, I want to hug her. I want to, hug, I want to fix every problem. But it's necessary for her to encounter problems so that she can be developed. Yeah. Okay, these are good desires twisted to evil ends. And it takes a lot of seasons to figure this out. That's why we're sharing it. Right. We've thrown an awful lot at you, and we're going to pick up our pace here because we're, we have 30 minutes of notes, and we're an hour and 10 minutes in. Uh, it's shocking. I think it's because we've stumbled on something worth saying. We're trying to help you become special. And that's done by the application of the word consistently in all of the areas that we're covering. The reason we've taken the time to point out what fake dominion is, fake cultivation, fake saviors, is because Satan masquerades as an angel of light. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 11.4. It feels like you are doing the right thing. It seems like what a Christian should do. But it leaves everything in your dominion unimproved. That's the problem. And nobody suffers from this worse than today's popsicle pansy powder puff pastors. So when we do these things wrongly, it is with good desires. But the problem is when you start to apply God's word to your own heart, you find out that your desires weren't as pure as you thought they were. You start to find things like, my God, I desperately need the acceptance of other people. You start to find out I'm really working for the approval of the people around me. You start to develop the ability to see impure motives in you that masquerade as good things. I listen to 12 messages every week from our, our strongest disciples. It's funny how wrong some of them are. I can see from the seasons of my life and working to apply the word of God the things that you don't see. That's why God put sages to help cultivate people. That is why we're growing in this every year. What I want, want to do at this point is flash our five traits on the screen again and focus solely on sages, okay? Not working through anything other than what it is to be a sage. A sage is special because he's been through many seasons. They're marked by Temporary mistakes that don't become permanent failures because you grow from them. It develops in us discernment that's not easily obtained. You learn the difference between real and fake dominion. You learn the difference between real and fake cultivation, real and fake saving. Sages are special, and they can only be made through many seasons. All of you are destined to become sages within your dominion. 
But we have to learn in these seasons. We have to correct in these seasons. We have to be trained in righteousness. The standout scripture that comes to my mind is Hebrews 5.14. I'm going to read it in the ESV. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment. Somebody say powers. Powers. Wow. Powers of discernment. Like it, it needs Tesla batteries. It, it needs, it needs a, an umbilical cord to the throne. Powers of discernment. Trained by constant practice. One of the reasons that nice guys have such a problem in this church is you set your practice early in life, early in your marriage, and you have defended it at all costs in spite of all of the data. We need constant practice. Practice means you're reevaluating it. You're going back and looking at it. You are learning new ways of godly dominion, cultivation, saving, new ways because your old ways have not produced the righteous life that God wants. This kind of experience in a sage... Well, it's developed in the seasons of his life, and it's truly special. Sages are made through Joshua's formula. You all grew up or at some point came across Joshua 1.8. The book of this law shall not depart from your mouth. Sages are men that are speaking the word all of the time. But that's not enough. You shall meditate on it day and night. That means that you're chewing over it in your mouth and in your mind. You know why? We have innate evil inclinations that will misapply any truth. We need the word to keep helping us do that. So that you may be careful to do, not think, not feel, to do all that is written in it. See, that is a huge thing. You want to know how you can identify a sage? For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. If you are prospering in your dominion, if you're prospering in your cultivation, prospering in your saving, if it is successful over time, constantly improving that that's under your dominion, then you're developing sage-like qualities. If you're repeating the same thing and pretty sure that it's the fault of your community, the fault of those that you lead, the fault of where you work, the fault of Biden administration, which is bad but is not the problem, then you're missing something, Okay? Sages learn from their experiences. It's a fake kind of sage, and I, I, we're just going to get this out there, that lives by regurgitating axioms that they've heard and that they really hope will work. These men have not gone through the practice of trial and error to train their powers of discernment regarding the statement they're making. Why do they do it? Why do you do it? Because you want to seem weighty. And important. The problem is, is without the yada kind of experience with the revelation that you have received, your advice is impotent and shallow. It's not derived from the throne or your application of working out. Why do you want to teach material that's way beyond you that I've written? Because you really want to be seen as a sage before you put in any of the seasons or the times to do it. And it shows up when you don't show your failures in the material. You just pretend like, well, it's okay. Let's do another one. It's a kind of fake sage that operates solely within the realm of their experience. On the one hand, your experience is good and it's valuable as it relates to the revelation that you've received in your experience with it. But there is a kind of sage that practices worldly, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. You want to learn more about that? Read James 
It's when you do not turn to the word, you do not point to a revelation, you say, well, I've lived a while. Good news. That doesn't make you special. Well, I got a lot of life's experiences. Well, you've lived a sinful life. Why? why? A worldly sage is a false sage. The biblical sage was given a revelation from the throne and has had a lifetime of experience filled with successes and failures implementing the revelation. Those guys are special, but it takes constant practice. It takes perpetual meditation, and it's invaluable for producing success. Sages are special, and you really can't come one, become one without going through pro- constant practice in many seasons of dominion, cultivation, saving. That's what develops you into something that's called sagely. And we want that. And you can have it. It's entirely, you can be special if you want to be. Church, do you want to be special? See, the very first thing that we have to do, the very first side of that sword is to apply these things to our own heart. The very first thing we have to do is eliminate the fake areas of dominion, the fake arenas of cultivation, the fake process of saving the fake expressions of being a counterfeit sage. You know, those fake areas of dominion where you've got accomplishments and intimacy that are not directed from the throne? These fake accomplishments are motivated by a conquest that doesn't flow from the dominion of Christ. Let me help you identify it because this is kind of a report card for you as we're moving to a close. If the accomplishments that are the most satisfying to you, that you, you tend to let come out of your mouth, I built a business, I built a shed, I bought a car. I mean, if it didn't flow from direct obedience to the dominion of Christ, it's fake dominion. You're proud of things that were not birthed of God. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have them or that they were wrong. I'm saying it's not Christ's dominion. It might be within your within your liberty to do those things, but it wasn't directed by God. So you actually have no real dominion. That's fake dominion. Real dominion is when you can say, the Lord said this, I travailed and by the sweat of my brow and the grace of my God, this has been accomplished. And I know that God called it. Fake dominion is all of the other things that you do to give yourself that sense of achievement without having that achievement. For us to be special in this house, we have to eliminate areas of fake dominion. We have to eliminate the areas of fake cultivation where you think it's your highest priority in life to flatter those who are under your leadership, to redirect, to Try to hide the areas where you have a overwhelming deficit in the fruit of your life. No actual evidence or data to confirm all the things that you've been saying that you've been cultivating. See, this is motivated in the heart of a man by trying to find acceptance from those that you are leading. They will accept you when you demonstrate the capacity to actually cultivate. When somebody is going through any kind of training, they hate the trainer until they see what it's produced, and then they pay the trainer to show up at their house. You're trying to get acceptance without results when you're in fake cultivation, and it's based on what you need, not what they need. 
You need them to think highly of you. Yeah. You need them to believe that you're the most loving, gentle, amazing, manicured manlet. What you actually have to do is gain acceptance by producing what God says to be produced, even while they resist. Resistance is endemic to the creation. If you're not able to hear the truth of what we're saying to you today, then these are areas that you have to take for that your pastors understand what you need. Eliminate areas of fake dominion. You have to eliminate the areas of fake cultivation. You have to eliminate the areas of being a false, fake savior where you're nurturing offense. You're shielding the development. You're actually being an enabler instead of a savior. <laughs> as these things go down in their progression, as we progress through them, the, what they are motivated by gets worse and worse. Where a, cult, a fake cultivation, you're motivated by acceptance. Then as a fake savior, you're motivated by the need for their approval. Don't just accept me. Approve of what I'm doing and tell me that I'm doing it right. So in fake cultivation, you're, you're worried about what they can accept and you want them to accept you. In, in fake saving, it's worse than that. You're worried about what they will approve of. It's not just tolerate. It's not just accept. It's you need them to cheerlead your actions or you won't perform the actions because it will threaten your relationship. None of you came to Christ that way, by the way. Okay? He first showed you your wickedness before he delivered you from it. He was never working for your acceptance or your approval. One of the saddest things in Christianity is just accept Christ. What if he won't accept you? You have to be led by a spirit of holiness. You have to be yearning to change. You have to be broken and contrite in your heart to be accepted by God. And we're going to actually turn that around and say, you have to accept him? See what's wrong with our society? If you want to save people, you cannot work for their acceptance or their approval. You work for God's acceptance and God's approval, and he will take care of the rest. The last thing that we need to eliminate is being a fake sage, to have a regurgitation without experience in a particular matter, to have experience but without a, without a revelation. This reminds us of Ahimaaz. I, I want to run. I've got to run. I, I don't really have anything to say, but let me run on ahead and do something so that I can look like I have a weighty, wise atmosphere about my own life. This is motivated by a false sense of wanting to have some weightiness to you before you've actually developed it. Can you see how these have gotten progressively worse? You'll end up being your own glory bearer while you say you're bearing Christ's glory. That's, that's so, and, and I got to say, I'm like everybody else. I'd rather not tell you where I found some amazing things. Because I would like you to like me and find me impressive. But that is sinful. It's, it's wicked. And what, what I would be doing in that case is perverting what a sage is while believing I was doing it for you. A real sage can demonstrate in a quote, in a passage, in someone else's teaching, I heard this at this time. 
This is what it corrected in me. Here's what it's looked like to go through the seasons to get this right. And I still have a ways to go, but I've made progress. And I would like your progress to happen faster than mine. That's why I'm demonstrating. That's what sages do. Sages are not the guys that sit there and look smart. And they're standing on somebody else's shoulders. And they confidently affirm things they don't understand. Paul addressed people like that. But we don't have time for that. What is the... How, how do we fix this, Matthew? There is a special solution that God has to fix all of this. A special solution that's going to fix the fake and rebellious attack on God's hierarchy. And that is to go back to the flow of God's right hierarchy. Let's go to this next slide. The special sh- uh, solution that we have is the word shalom. But as you can see... It is an acronym for an action to take. And that is the deliberate action of setting him as Lord over me. So let's do this so that we have full participation and attention. Go ahead and sit down your Bibles. Stand to your feet. We're going to describe exactly what kind of action we're going to take right now. So while looking at this slide and seeing the demonstrable action you are to take to establish shalom, let's start with this. You cannot show dominion without setting him as Lord over me. That shows the real dominion of Christ. That's what makes sages so special. They have done this over and over again, tried and failed many times, And they are now able to help us do what they have learned to do. You cannot have the cultivation without setting him as Lord over me, one that cultivates the real fruit of Christ. This is what makes sages so special, that they have cultivated over seasons of trial and error. And they can take their hand and put it on your hand and teach you exactly how to do what they do. You cannot be a savior without setting him as Lord over me. Coming back to that right hierarchy of God that establishes right order inside of you. One that saves those under you from evil while bringing development. Sages are special because they've gone through this many times. They know the distinction between being a real savior and being an enabler. And they're able to teach us how to do the same. Lastly, You cannot be a sage without setting him as Lord over me, one that gives real and weighty sagely wisdom that teaches and instructs. Walking in right order with God, going in his flow of shalom, deliberately, constantly setting him as Lord of me is what will teach you over seasons of trial and error to possess the weighty wisdom that you see in other men. So what do we do now? We need to have our hearts rightly evaluated before God. Our hearts need to be put at the altar and ask the Lord to show you where you are blind by your own fake expression of the the areas that we covered in holy masculinity. But it doesn't stop there. See, You're going to deal with those thorns and thistles, but you're going to rise up with a greater revelation of how to set him as Lord over you and learn 
how to walk in a fruitfulness that is born from it. So as we pray, let your hearts go before God and stand up as a man and begin to act. We thank you, Jesus, for your word, your double-edged sword. Lord, come and pierce our hearts right now. Pierce our minds. Lord, remove the blinders of self-deception that, that keep us from walking in your right order and bearing your right fruit. Say, Spirit, breathe on this word right now, in this moment, on these hearts, and let us rise up to imitate you and reflect your image. In Jesus' name.